Good morning and welcome to another Beers for Bacon show with me, Jason Black. For today's show, and yes, for next week's one too, we're pulling that old chestnut out of the stable and chatting about the chicken and the egg. Or in our case, the egg and then the chicken. For today's show, as exciting as always, JC Viennes will be talking about wine. And a little later on, the hilarious Neil Tomes will share a recipe for a chicken scotch egg. He'll also be testing this week's gadget. And then I'll tell you how to make a perfect omelette. The team at Amber at the landmark Mandarin Oriental share the secrets to successful souffles. We've also got the Morning Brew Kitchen wonderkind, Mike Van Warmelo, bringing closure to the debate on the origins of the egg-white awesomeness of the gooey-scented meringue called the pavlova. M is the letter in our alphabet soup, and I'll be reviewing another favorite cookbook that's worth getting your hands on. But before cracking on with all of that, let's uncork it all with our resident wine man, J.C. Viennes. Today's show, we're talking about the egg in a, in a big way and how it's actually in a lot of dishes that people don't realize. And I think one that's most important, probably from a wine sense, is in desserts. In fact, we haven't uh, spoken too much about dessert wines until now, and uh, that would be great. We could uh, we could do that because, you know, I have a real sweet tooth when it comes to, uh, to wine, and I have a special relationship with dessert wines, yeah. Okay. Um, so if we had a look at the classic egg, um, dessert would be probably the souffle. Um, yeah, souffle. I suppose uh, it would be very similar to a dessert that um, uh, that uh, I used to love, absolutely love. Do you remember there was M at the Fringe many uh, years ago? Many years ago, and there was a dessert at that moment was called uh, the Pavlova. Ah, oh, yes. Yes. Oh, in fact, um, every time we went there, Maria and I, uh, uh, she always said, "No, just order one. I will have a bite." And I never trusted her ever again after the first time I did that because obviously I had the bite and she had the rest. But that dessert, if you remember, was was very much about eggs because they had that meringue on the top, right? Mm-hmm. This uh, how do you make a, a meringue? I guess you you whip yeah, some right. some eggs and then you you put some sugar, sugar whatever. Yeah. So I always had this with a moscato d'asti. Moscato d'asti obviously is from Italy and it's from the north of Italy. Uh, made with a grape moscato, moscato bianco. And what's so lovely about this wine is that it's very uh, aromatic, full of perfume, full of of of, of uh, blossom, orange blossom, peach blossom, all of these kind of flowers. And um, uh, what's so special about this is that it's a light wine, only 5% alcohol. So the wine is very, uh, very fluid in the mouth, almost like uh, drinking water. And it is bubbly, but a very gentle bubble. So the impression, the feeling, the texture of drinking this Moscato d'Asti, very similar to the texture of the pavlova and the texture of the souffle, because it's so light. Uh, in fact, when you, you eat these desserts, it's almost like you're eating air, sugary air. Well, this wine is very similar. And so you remember I told you what goes together goes together. So I can imagine already my mouth is watering, thinking that souffle with this Moscato d'Asti would be match in heaven. And souffles are often either fruit-based or chocolate and custard-based. Would that make a difference to you on the wine you chose? Uh, For custard-based, I guess, with Moscato d'Asti would be easier. 
Now, if we go for a chocolate base, and then I would go for something a little bit more um, oxidized, a little bit more controlled oxidized. And when I say that is because the wine was aged for a very long time in some barrels and the age was exposed to some degree of uh, oxygen. And so the wine transformed slowly, not only became darker in color, but most importantly, uh, a bit richer in texture and aromas uh, going towards the nutty, the smoky, the, the earthy. And these kind of aromas are beautiful with chocolate because it, it, it just it's just similar sort of uh, of of uh, aromatics and flavors chocolate's a difficult a difficult one to pair with wine for the best part yes indeed because chocolate as you know is bitter generally speaking this is why white, uh, white chocolate as you know is is whipped with some milk and uh, a lot of sugar is to make that bitterness less uh, uh, obvious and many wines actually uh, boost the bitterness because acidity boosts bitterness. Uh, the tannic of the, the tannin of red wine boosts bitterness. So we need to find something that actually uh, will mellow out uh, uh, the the property of chocolate. And so this is why sweet wines normally would are are much better uh, at doing this job than any other types of wine. And uh, there are some red wines like uh, Recciotto della Valpolicella. Uh, from the north of Italy. This is a red wine made of uh, beautiful grapes. Um, and with chocolate, this is a perfect match. The wine is not too alcoholic, uh, less alcoholic than Porto, uh, because many people actually like Porto with chocolate, but the alcohol level of Porto is 20%. So here you can have just a small glass and it's rich too. And, and it's very rich. Yeah, especially when chocolate desserts are supposed to be rich. Exactly. This is why here a chocolate mousse is even better with this kind of wine. And I believe the chocolate mousse, you make it with eggs, Absolutely. right? To make it fluffy and light. And so uh, to have uh, this kind of uh, port or recciotto de la Valpolicella uh, works quite well with not only chocolate, but something fluffy and, and moussey, like uh, chocolate mousse, yes. Obviously, you can go also with some sparkling wine. I mentioned Moscato d'Asti. Uh, now, more and more champagne is made in a very dry style, not sweet, no sweetness at all. But there is a category of sparkling wine that is very famous is Prosecco. And some Prosecco, we have the Brut style, which is uh, not sweet at all. But we also have what we call the Dry style, which is quite sweet. And there is a special area in the north of Italy called Cartizze. And Cartizze is a very small vineyard, only 100 producers. And they make this beautiful Prosecco, uh, Cartizze Cru, hein, Cartizze Cru. And the wine is slightly sweet, very floral, uh, uh, with quite a bit of bubbles to refresh the mouth. And this is, again, a very beautiful uh, dessert wine with this kind of um, uh, egg-based desserts that uh, that you're talking about. We'll catch up again with JC Viennes next week. Now, no matter your belief in a greater being or Darwin's theory of evolution or even green Martians seeding the earth before building the pyramids, the egg is definitely the French toast version of manna from heaven. 
In practical terms, there is nothing that beats it when it comes to versatility. And in my opinion, it does a bloody great job of being one of the best ingredients to work with, from starters all the way through to desserts. Let's be honest, despite a lot of things passing themselves off as chicken, snake, crocodile and rabbit, for example, nothing masquerades as an egg. It is what it is, and proudly so. And yet it appears in many more dishes than you'd imagine and very un-egg-like. If you look at old-fashioned French cookbooks, the egg was revered, often having its own section of recipes. In classic degustation dinners, it was even a course. I reckon the egg is to cookery what fire was to carnivorous cavemen. Without it, life would be pretty miserable. Even if you're not willing to go that far, you'd have to agree that without the egg, breakfast would be boring. For sure, there'd be nothing to dip your soldiers into, and for many of the French classic mother sauces, you could simply forget mayonnaise, hollandaise, and bernaise too. Pastries, eclairs, cakes, custards, macaroons, meringues, brownies, yeah, they also wouldn't exist. Brioche? Without the egg, what brioche? Yes, it doesn't matter which one came first. It should really be about the one which is the most important. Right, let's get started where we encounter the egg in its purest form, at breakfast, with Neil Tomes suffering a gadget test. Okay, so um, I'm here again. I seem to be the uh, go-to egg man for gadgets and devices for eggs. I've got a... uh, In front of me, I have a miracle where... Um, omelette maker. It looks like sort of a waffle device, but it's made of plastic. It's uh, two, two um, semicircles hinged together. I'm now getting four eggs, cracking them. It's an exceptional um, recipe, this. I'm just going to put a little bit of seasoning in, so a little bit of salt. And don't just mix them, give them a good whipping because it gets some air into them. Makes your um, omelette a bit fluffier. Okay. Nice and fluffy. Now I'm going to pour half of the mix into one side and then pop it in the microwave. It's alive. It's just opened up dramatically, so the egg is uh, expanded. Which is actually not really a great sign for omelettes. It means it's sort of overcooked a little bit. Um, I think it's... I I can only say rubbish, really. I mean, honestly, grab a pan, put an omelette in a pan. I I swear to God you could do it just as quickly and much... I wouldn't even eat that. Sorry. How much is that? Fifty. $50. $50. I suppose you could use it as, as a, you know, when you go camping, you could use it as like a little presentation bowl. For nuts, nuts and, nuts and fruit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thanks for that, Neil. We'll pop back for your Scotch egg recipe in a bit. So, crappy gadgets aside, simplicity is the key to making a great omelette. It's a matter of getting the right size pan, choosing great eggs, and always using butter. Beat and season the eggs well. And then when putting them into the pan, stir the mixture from the middle and allowing the unset liquid to run to the edges. When it's just set, fold the edges into the middle and fold again. And an omelette should never, 
ever take longer than a minute to cook. Now, before Neil Tomes throws a spanner into the works with his chicken scotch egg recipe, let me share a book from one of my favorite restaurants in New York. Balthazar is on my must-visit list every time I go there. There is something about the restaurant that pushes every positive button I have. The atmosphere is electric, the decor feels lived in, and the staff go about their business in a friendly but very professional manner. What I most like about Balthazar is the food. It's unpretentious and it's consistently good. I've lost count how many times I've been there and how many steak tartars I've had, and the same can be said for the onion soup. Almost as good as dining there is cooking the recipes from the restaurant's book, written by Keith McNally, the owner, and his previous chefs, Riyad Nasser and Lee Hansen. It's brasserie food, plain, simple, and very, very good. I've probably made about 80% of the recipes from this particular book, which is a pretty high number given that a lot of cookbooks serve merely as inspiration. What really cements a book for me is if I go back to it often – either for a recipe or just for a good read about the operation. In this book, it details the daily timeline of the restaurant, and having seen it packed every time I've been there, I can tell you that they're certainly putting in the hours as they say they do. On the recipes themselves, the steak tartare is sublime, the foie gras mousse is excellent, as is the goat's cheese tart with caramelized onions. What I also really like about the book is the chicken jus made with wings, amongst all of the other sauces and dressings that I've also tried. If you enjoy classic French brasserie-style dishes laid out in an approachable fashion, this is a must-have book, especially if you're not lucky enough to be heading to New York to eat there soon. Talking about heading out, let's catch up with Neil again for his recipe on the scotch egg. Today we're going to um, uh, look at that age-old um, question of what came first, the chicken or the egg. Um, I'm going to actually do a scotch egg. Um, I normally use pork, as everyone does, um, but I'm going to use a chicken. So what we need is um, a fattier part of the chicken, so we need the thigh. Um, now... You can keep the skin on, yeah? Because the skin contains a lot of the fat and the flavour. Um, we need to mince this, okay? Now, I know in my normal scotch egg, I would use a, a mixture, uh, what I call house paste, of um, onion, uh, garlic and ginger. It's like three, two, one. So it's 300 grams of onion, 200 grams of garlic, 100 grams of ginger, mixed with enough oil... Um, to make it into a paste in, in, a, in a blender, okay? And we're going to cook out that a little bit with something that goes really well with chicken. So I'm going to use some dried tarragon. Um, uh, a teaspoon of dry, dried tarragon. Cook out the paste in a little oil or butter um, so that you get the rawness of the onion and the garlic out of it. Um, and then let that cool down. And then we're going to mix that in to the uh, minced um, chicken. And then this is where really it gets curious because what came first, the chicken or the egg? Because essentially, to make this dish, the first thing you need is the egg. Or is it the meat? And then you've got the whole thing of like, to actually, you've got the egg on the inside, then you've got the chicken meat on the outside, then you've got the egg on the outside to breadcrumb it, yeah? Wow, this is a, this is a tough one. <laughs> So what we need to do is cook the egg. Um, cook them five and a half minutes from room temperature. Get them out, ice them down, 
peel them. Then we're going to get our mix, which is the minced chicken with the tarragon, the paste, and let's um, season it up with some salt and pepper. Now we're going to take a big a patty of that, flatten it in our palms, put the egg in the center, and then wrap it round. Make sure that it's completely covered and there's no little gaps. Now we're going to drop that into um, some normal all-purpose flour, into the egg wash, then into the breadcrumbs. Now it's up to you. You could breadcrumb it twice or once, depending on if, how much crunch and coating you want. I normally do it once. And then you deep fry that. You can use quail eggs or hen's eggs. And just fry to a golden brown and then just make sure that you've uh, checked the inside temperature. It's always a pleasure to chat to Chef Neil Tomes. Now, where eggs come into their own is in desserts. They provide the structure, the richness, and often do the heavy lifting without getting the credit they deserve. Let's head over to the Amber Kitchen and talk about souffles. Well, here I am with the one and only Chef Richard Echebis. So... A good souffle. Well, first of all, you cannot make a good souffle if you have fresh eggs. That sounds daft, but the best souffles you make with egg whites that have been a couple of days in the fridge. So, what we do in general is we, we uh, separate the egg yolks from the egg whites and the whites we put in the fridge for like three days. And after three days we will use it. If you use egg white, it's too fresh, and the moment you start to whip it, you have, you, it, it, it will split and you will have a texture in your souffle that's not very smooth. Second is to make a good base. In this case, we're doing the signature uh, chocolate souffle. I serve it here in Amber. Uh, it's basically a base, like a pastry cream, but with, uh, with some cocoa powder and chocolate inside. So first, you boil half a liter of milk. You add 150 gram of sugar. Then you mix that in warm on top of 90 gram uh, flour. 30 gram cocoa powder, you mix that, and then you mix that into the hot mix. So basically, you have that mixed together, the cocoa powder and the flour, you mix it together in a bowl, you boil up the milk, put it into the bowl with the, the, the flour and, and uh, cocoa powder mix, mix it up, make sure there's no lumps, put it back in the, in the pot, and just boil it for seven minutes, okay? When it's boiled, you take another 50 gram of very bitter chocolate and you basically add it, when you take the pot off the, the fire, you add it in and you, you stir it in. You cover this cream with a plastic and let it get to room temperature, luck warm. And then you start to make your souffle. From that, for the souffle, for one souffle, so we have, you know, large souffle cups. We, like, we feel that the souffle needs to be generous. What we do inside, we take uh, some room temperature butter, we, we cover the whole uh, cocottes with, with butter and then we add some uh, a mix of a little bit of cocoa powder with sugar it's about one to four we put that in and we make sure that everything is coated on the side of the cocottes with the mix of cocoa powder and, and sugar you then remove the excess sugar and cocoa powder and this is your base why do you need this sugar this sugar you need because when we add the mass into the cocottes and then we put it in the oven this will help the mass to grow into the into to raise into the into the molds and we're going to take the egg whites so we take for uh, a souffle like this like for for two nice souffles we take 150 gram of the chocolate base mass we use 100 gram of egg whites and we use 50 grams of sugar 
So the 100 grams we beat in the mixer to soft peak with the sugar. Now it is very important not to, to whip the, the egg white too quickly. It's also very important that the beacon that you use to mix the egg white is completely fat free. If it's a little bit oily then the, the egg white does not really uh, come up uh, sufficiently. So what we do in general, we, we clean the bowls with a little bit of lemon juice. So when the egg white starts to, uh, to become nicely whipped, we start to add slowly the sugar. So what we do is now we fold a little bit of the egg white, right about a quarter, into the, the, the lukewarm uh, chocolate mix or the, the pastry cream. And we're going to make sure that it's all sort of uh, uh, taken up. Then we add it to the rest of the egg whites and we fold it in very slowly. This stage you can mix it a little bit, it's not a problem. So that, that quarter you can mix in through, so to make sure that you don't get the lumps. There you go, you see it's like a very light chocolate mousse almost. And now we're going to fold in very slowly the mix. It's going in the oven, 200 degrees, for about 10 to 11 minutes, depending on the size of the, of the cocotte. Right, let's drop an egg in it Chinese style and look at the letter M in this week's Alphabet Soup. M is for macerate, the soaking of fruit or vegetables in a wine or syrup so that they soak up the flavor. M is for madeleine, those little shell-shaped batter cakes that were so loved by Proust and staying sweet for a moment. M is also for marzipan, an almond paste that's mixed with egg whites and kneaded to a smooth dough, then rolled with a rolling pin, of course, before being used to cover cakes. M is for matelot, a French fish stew. And because it's still French gourmet, the Alsatian matelot is made with Riesling and thickened with cream, and yes, you guessed it, eggs. Lastly, M is for Mike. Yeah, Mike. A chef that you'll have heard on Morning Brew who's up next to talk us through the contested version of the M is for Meringue, the pavlova. Okay, the pavlova, Australia and New Zealand's bane of existence. They've been arguing for years over this dish. And in, to all intents and purposes, it probably goes to New Zealand. Uh, being an Australian, I'm probably going to get killed for that, but I think it was uh, first produced in New Zealand. That being said, the pavlova was probably copied off a dish that was more European than anything, possibly German, using the egg whites. So today we're going to hear, we're going to talk about this particular dish. I reckon most people enjoy a pavlova. It's a lovely meringue dish, but the secret to this dish is that it should have that beautiful marshmallow, silky middle. It's not a totally dry meringue. That's what gives it an absolute appeal when you're eating it. Uh, it's very popular in these countries, Australia and New Zealand, as it is usually summer when people eat this. Also, summertime and Christmas in the Southern Hemisphere. It's probably quite foreign to a lot of people, but most of us celebrate summer and Christmas together, which is very strange. 
Now, to make the perfect kiwi pavlova, you need four egg whites, very clean egg whites. Now, there's a lot of discussion about the mixing. If you get any egg yolk in, it's never going to work. They generally do work if you have a little bit of egg yolk, but it will take longer to make. So, nice and clean, beautiful, fresh eggs uh, split with the... So the egg whites one side, yolks can go into something else. You need one cup of sugar, one teaspoon of lemon juice or cream of tartare. One of those acids you can will help make the dish. And some people use two teaspoons of corn flour. This also stabilizes your mix. I tend to use icing sugar. I just think if you're gonna have sweetness, uh, you might as well add icing sugar, which also has got a corn flour base to it anyway. So it's just a bit of starch to help stabilize that dish because you're, you're not making a dry meringue, you want to keep that moist center. Uh, egg whites go on into your mixer. If you've got a standalone mixer like a KitchenAid or a Kenwood, on full, always on full. Get the air into those egg whites as quick as you can. Yeah, once you've got a, what they call a soft peak, you don't want to over whip them, otherwise it'll look like sand on a beach. You want a soft peak, you start to add your sugar, spoonful by spoonful, till it's all, all finished. Then you mix your, your lemon juice and your corn flour or icing sugar together, and I like to fold that into the egg whites. I don't like to whip it in because you start to lose the volume of your egg whites. And the whole idea of whipping egg whites is to create volume and as much as you can. Once you've got that lovely, glossy, uh, beautiful uh, meringue where you can't, if you put your figure in and taste it, you shouldn't taste any sugar granules. It should be smooth, smooth and silky. If you've still got sugar granules, it's not beaten enough. So you need to keep beating it till you your sugar is dissolved. Otherwise, you will also get the sugar melting and running out of your meringue and it, it cracks and you don't, you'll dry in the center if that outside exterior cracks too much goes onto a tray, onto some baking paper or some parchment or a silicon silicon tray, uh, mat, which you can easily buy at a lot of cookware shops nowadays, and you pile the meringue on. I like to keep it very natural and just let it form peaks and troughs as you go. Maybe a slight trough in the middle, so that will allow you to put your lovely whipped cream and fruit in and contain that while you're when you're finished. In the oven, 130 degrees for one and a half hours. You don't want it too hot, otherwise the outside will burn. Crisp outside. And then the secret to getting your beautiful pavlova is just to turn that oven off, maybe jar the oven door open an inch and let it cool down in the oven. That way no moisture or anything can get to your pavlova. The outside will stay dry and the middle will be Van Marshmallow. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. That brings an end to our show about bacon's best friend, the egg. I'll be back same time, same place next week to see if my chickens have come home to roost. Until then, have a great week. Bye-bye for now.